I'm Dr. Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, This Mythic Life. Like all of my work, this podcast is drawn from ancient but still bubbling wellsprings, from the old, forgotten pre-Christian mythologies and philosophies of the West. These traditions, from the magical stories of Celtic Ireland to the soul-centered myth-tellings of Plato in ancient Greece, are rich, complex, and beautiful. They offer up a world in which everything is not only alive, but has purpose and intentionality of its own. I believe that it's time to reclaim those old indigenous ways of being in the world and bring them back out into the world where they belong. So founded in authentic scholarship, as well as committed embodied practice in the mythopoetic and creative arts, my work on the mythic imagination is above all about finding our way back into the mystic, about delving into the mysteries of wild psyche and finding a deep embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful animate earth. In this podcast, I offer you conversations with people who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us find our way back home through this dark forest of our forgetting. And if you enjoy it, you might also enjoy my monthly membership program, which is also called This Mythic Life, and which includes a weekly subscriber-only podcast in which I focus in on a favorite myth or fairy tale and discuss the ways in which its themes and archetypes cast light on the issues we face in our lives in these challenging times. You'll find details at www.sharonblackie.net forward slash membership. So I'm here today with Mary McLaughlin, who is a singer, songwriter, and a teacher who's steeped in the Ulster Gaelic song tradition of Ireland, where she was born and raised. And Mary records and performs and teaches workshops in singing skills. And she also teaches singing skills um, in the Gaelic tradition online, which is a very wonderful thing to do, and uh, performance technique and Gaelic song culture. She was born in Ireland, but she lived for many years in London, performing on the English folk scene, singing and playing guitar and keyboards with a whole variety of groups, and then moved to California, touring with various bands in America and teaching there. After 17 years in America, Mary relocated to Ireland, where she has had a complete turnaround and has pursued a PhD and now is engaged in an academic career as well as her as well as her music so that's an unusual way around. Her solo recording career got launched in 1991 with an album called The Daughter of Leah and the lead track Seal Woman which we're going to listen to during the podcast is a beautiful version of, uh, of an old Selkie song from the islands of Scotland was on the 1995 Celtic Voices album which reached number three in the Billboard charts and introduced it to an international audience so I think you've got four solo albums in total Mary is that right? Yeah, I have four solo albums that I own, but there's a fifth album, which is on Sony, called Celtic Requiem. So in terms of my repertoire, if you like, that I should include that one as well. But Brilliant. that's not one that I actually sell. It's online uh, through Sony. Brilliant. Okay. And one of the things or the main thing that we're going to talk about today, because this is a great interest of yours, it was part of your PhD thesis. And I think it's it's one of those areas which seems to be coming back again into public consciousness. We're going to be talking about keening and the old Irish tradition of keening in context. So tell us something about what that is. Okay. Well, it, it's actually a massive, it's a massive concept it's a massive idea I had known about keening since I was a small child but it was always spoken about in very sort of hushed 
voices, you know, Mm. one of the forbidden subjects that wasn't discussed. I was raised in the north of Ireland where there was a very strong Keenan tradition, but I never actually heard it. I just knew about it. And I think what really sparked my interest was when my own mother passed away and it was a very traumatic event, etc. And I experienced, as they were taking the coffin from the house, I experienced this deep, deep scream starting in the center of my stomach. And that's the only way I can describe it. And it was like, you know, that feeling when you're about to be sick and you just don't want anybody around you. It was like that, but it wasn't a physical thing. It was it was a totally emotional thing. And I could feel it coming. I ran around the back of the house and I just erupted into wailing. Interesting, yeah. It was really fascinating. And um, at the time, I didn't think it was fascinating. I just thought it was awful. <laughs> but when I was reflecting on all this, you know, I thought, that was, was that, was I keening? And I started then looking into it. So I mentioned that album, Celtic Requiem, because although it's not one that I can sort of put out there myself, it was very much based on that. It was very much based on looking for what on earth is this all about? And I um, mix up Latin chant and Irish traditional song on that album. And there's a piece in the middle, because I'm also a songwriter, there's a piece in the middle which I created called Requiem, which is based on the Latin Requiem. And it's just, you know, the um, may, may the rest in perpetual light, that little piece of it in Latin. And I begin to keen at the end, totally improvised, was in the studio and I'll never forget the face of the engineer and the producer <laughs> just looked in a state of complete shock. This is in California in 1998. <laughs> and I came out and nobody said anything. <laughs> and I said, well, I, I just did some keening at the end. And they went, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then they looked at each other and they said, you know, maybe we'll cut that bit. And I said, well, I don't want it cut. Maybe we can water it down. So what happens if anybody ever actually gets hold of this album? As I say, it's online, so it it is. It's on iTunes. The track begins to fade off. And as you hear it fading from this Latin, you hear this wailing coming in and just rising to crescendo and then falling away. So it was the first part of the keening that I actually did in the studio. So after that, I began to really research it. And it's it's a fascinating area. I have to say right up at this front that I haven't actually personally witnessed it. But that doesn't surprise me because it's a very secretive activity. Yeah. Why is that? You said that it was always talked about in hushed tones when you were growing up. Why is it so secretive? Why is it not talked about? What what happened there? Well, it's been that way. There are two things. First of all, it's sacred. It's part of a much bigger rite, which is the ritual of the wake. Right. And people don't really, really understand the ritual of the wake. And I'll, I'll go through it in detail. But because that wasn't understood, the keening is, is like the jewel in the crown of the wake. It's the absolute climax of the wake. And it continues through the wake, continues right to the gravesite. But it wasn't, it wasn't understood. It wasn't appreciated. In fact, it was very consciously banned by the church from the 1600s on. There were acts, et cetera, et cetera. So it went underground. That's number one. Number two, because it's a part of the ritual, it's very personalized to the person who's passed away. 
Therefore, it's felt that it's unlucky to sing a keen outside of that. And furthermore, there is no such thing as a set keen. It's an improvisation around a concept and a theme, and there is an actual structure, but there is no dictated song. So keens would be composed there and then, they were of the moment, and they may or not may or may not be repeated at some time, but they'd never be repeated exactly the same. And it's the case that there were kind of like professional keeners. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that goes way back. The professional keeners, again, they, they were the people that really came into the clergy's wrath beginning in the 1600s. You know, there were these edicts that would say, you know, professional keeners would be uh, excommunicated from the church, etc., etc. The professional keeners, it's always been the, the sort of the, the area of women keening. Now, there have been main key, male keeners, but it's always considered it's been the area of women. And that goes right, right back to ancient Roman times. So it coming through the tradition, the women would be often the midwives in a small community. So they would bring in life and they would take out life. Right. The same women. Now, that didn't always happen, but it did happen in the small communities, in the, in the rural communities. It was considered a gift. You had to be a very, very good singer to be a keener. You had to have a tremendous amount of uh, control over your own voice. You had to understand how you were using your voice. And you also had to be quite an actress because it's very dramatic. It's very theatrical. So there are many reports of people sending for professional keeners because there was nobody in their village or in their community who actually was able to do the job effectively. And it was also considered, especially in the Veltocht areas and the Irish speaking areas, it was also considered that it was an honour to the person to be keened. Therefore, it was very important they got the best possible that was available. Brendan Madigan, who's one of the big Gaelic writers about the keen, he said, you know, it was considered a disgrace to be just keened by one person. You know, the more keeners who knew what they were doing, the better. And also it would expand to the the company. So it wasn't just the professional keeners who were singing. They were leading the keen, but the actual mourners would join in. The reports uh, in 1833, of up to a thousand people coming to, you know, funeral, following a funeral keening. And one, at one point, somebody turns, uh, and a traveler asks one of the people in the crowd, who are you keening? And the person, I don't know. <laughs> but, but it was a huge community effort. So everybody did it. There's tremendous respect. As you know, Sharon, there's tremendous, tremendous respect around death in Ireland. I live in Munster and in a city and I was amazed just about two years ago, I think it was, I was in a bus going into the city and suddenly the bus stopped, apparently in the middle of the road. I couldn't see any traffic in front. I thought, what's going on? And then I saw there was a hearse coming towards us. So, you know, even to this day, there is that respect for the dead that everybody stops. And that's a key element to this whole ritual of the wake. Yeah, tell us something about the wake, because I think a lot of people who uh, perhaps don't know very much about Ireland and its traditions, you know, tend to think of it just as a party. Um, yeah. And it's obviously you, you, you put it in the context of a ritual. 
Exactly. So, so now, tell us about that. Certainly what's happened in later years, it has become more like a party, but also the people who were observing the wake in the 1700s, 1800s, they were literate English people, remembering that we're talking about peasant tradition where people were illiterate. And the visitors to Ireland who were English speaking and who would actually come to wakes and write reports on them had their own view. And they didn't really understand the depth of what was happening. And they didn't understand it was ritual. So they would denigrate it and say it was barbarous, mm-hmm. um, that it was uh, disgraceful and that there should be quietness and there should be psalms. Of course, the church went along with this view as well. They didn't like the pagan aspect of the way. So basically, if you look at ritual in general, there are certain elements that create a ritual and make it complete. There's space, ritual space, there's ritual time, there's costume, there's action, and there's sound. And those are sort of five of the chief elements that can constitute a ritual. And you can apply that to anything in, in a religion or in a, a faith-based or belief-based system, you know. So within the wake, the ritual space is the first thing that was created. You know, the, the, the person would die and almost immediately the, the family and the community would go into action. They would clear a room as the wake room and, you know, take all the extraneous stuff out of that place. They would put candles in it. They would, in the olden days, they used to just lay the body on a board in a shroud because then, you know, the the women would come in, the layer outers would come in and they would clean the corpse. Again, very symbolic, very, very ritual thing to do. This idea of washing happens at baptism. It happens in so many uh, traditions and it happens at death. In so many traditions, it's about cleaning off energy, you know, preparing for a transition. And so the space would be created. The, the people might take down uh, whatever available wooden slab there was. If there wasn't the table, they might take down a door, whatever there happened to be. It would be laid with the head to the west, the feet to the east. And that was very much about the, the belief that when you died, you went to the West. The West is also is the other world in Irish tradition. So that's also the area of fairy. So the corpse would be laid that way because the other world in Irish tradition is an amalgam of Christianity, paganism, fairy belief. It, you know, you'd be ushering the spirit along to that. Um, so this is, I'm talking about you know, the 1600s, 1700s here. We come into the 1800s, the 1900s, the 20th century. It, we begin to get glass in the houses, windows, things like that. The windows would be open. And there's a reason for that, that the spirit, once it left, would have an easy passage out. Mirrors would be removed from the room. And this happened right up until, well, it's still happening. It certainly happened in, in the case of my own mother's way. And the mirrors are, if they can't be removed, they're covered. And the reason for that, is that nobody wants the spirit to see themselves in the mirror and then try to get back into the body. So all these old beliefs around the space. So that's the first thing that happens is this ritual space that's created. Then ritual time comes in. And and I just gave you a modern example of the bus stopping. In the older days, what would happen the minute the death was heard of and it would go around the community very quickly. Um, Everybody would stop what they were doing. Tools would be laid down. Clocks would be stopped in the house. It's a way of stopping time because now we're going into liminal space we're going to time out of time where 
the normal rules don't apply. And that's kind of the key to the wake. The normal rules don't apply. The third element of ritual is costume. Now, in obviously, the, the corpse would be put, laid out in a shroud in the older days. Up by the 20th century, it was usually the best clothes, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, people are dying. And to this day, when people are dying and they know that they're dying, they will request to be buried in a specific outfit, which has some significance for them, that type of a thing. There's a wonderful book called Island Funeral. It was in the 2000s, uh, Doyle. Doyle. It's a a photographic uh, memoir of a funeral on Aran Island in the 1960s. And what happens there, you see that all the mourners, it was an elderly man who had died in the community in the Aran Island, and... All the mourners are in costume. They, that's what it looks like. They have tra- they're have they wearing traditional dress. So the men are wearing a tweed bonnie, like a waistcoat, and they're wearing a, a woven belt. Um, all the women are wearing skirts, dark-colored skirts, but they're wearing a bright red shawl, which mm-hmm. is wrapped around their head and around their shoulders. So it's a, a very, you know, a very powerful imagery of yeah. the entire community. In costume, so we can take that from that because the island communities tended to preserve these traditions much more than urban, you know, urban uh, society did. So we can take from that that was probably a clue to something that had happened in the past as well. The fourth element is action, and there's loads of action at the wake. There are the wake games. I'll talk about that in a second. But the wake games are one of the reasons why people thought it was a sort of a party atmosphere. There was also communal food. There was also communal smoking. Now that's been very frustrating <laughs> in recent years. But right I up until yeah, but right up until 1970, it was very common. You know, for for cigarettes to be passed around. In the 1800s, they used to use clay pipes, and sometimes the clay pipes were just for that occasion of the funeral, and they'd be buried with the corpse as a, a symbol of respect. There is always food, there is drink. Again, nowadays, uh, people tend to be a bit more conservative about it and you know, will offer tea, lots of tea and sandwiches and things like that. But it was certainly a culture, especially in Ireland, of alcohol. And I remember in the early 90s, being with my mother, I lived in London for a long time, so I used to come across and visit, and I was on a visit, and um, we were getting petrol, and this man comes to, you know, it was in the days where you would get a, somebody from the garage would come and put the petrol into the car, and he came to put the petrol into the car, and my mother recognised him, and she says, how are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm awful tired, missus, I'm awful tired. <laughs> and she, she said, why is that? Three funerals last night, missus. And mum just nodded, and went, oh, okay. So we drove off, I said, the poor man that's terrible three feet she said what are you talking about poor man he's a professional waker oh a professional said, waker a professional waker i said wow. what do you think? i'd never heard of it before and she said well she said he basically goes round to these funerals he finds out he looks in paper see who's died finds out a little bit about the person um goes around with a bottle of whiskey in his pocket and passes it round in the wake, and then gets people going. That's the way she does. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Only then, in Ireland. Only in Ireland. But getting people going is actually the key to what happened in the wake. Right. 
So he was continuing this tradition, but in a very 1990s way rather than an 1890s way. Right. <laughs> but it was all about emotional release, you know. And is that the function of it? I mean, that's what I was going to, to ask you. Is, is that what the function of, of the wake is and the function of the keening is? Is it about emotional yeah, release? The wake is about emotional release. The keening is deeper than that. Okay, uh, we'll come back to that then. Yeah, yeah. The wake is, and, that, and that's the party piece of it. It's, it's based on the idea of laughter and tears. So you'd have two key actors at the wake. One of them is the Borokhan. And the Barakhan is usually male, a well-known, very gregarious male in the community. And he would be the master of ceremonies, if you like. Mm -hmm. Now, his equivalent in, in, in classical would be, in the classical tradition, would be the trickster okay. um, or the clown. So he would organize what were called wake games. And the wake games um, were extremely raucous. Now, they had a couple of functions. One of them was to keep people awake. In the old days, the wake could go on for three days if people had to come in from abroad, for example. You know, Goodness me. Yeah, could go on for three days. Usually it would go on for about 24 hours, you know, or maybe a day and a night and before the burial. But still people, especially older people, would drift off to sleep. So there'd be all sorts of pranks and, you know, they would tie older people uh, to their chairs and then sort of throw water on them and they'd try to get up and they'd fall over <laughs> all this stuff would go on so it was a mixture of keeping people awake keeping people occupied and also remembering that all of these communities that we're talking about were small rural communities they'd be mixed so um there'd be youngsters coming there'd be children coming there'd be teenagers coming there'd be young people in their 20s coming and perhaps the funeral might be for somebody in their 90s who they'd only vaguely known so everybody gathered because the wake was a huge occasion for building community and for strengthening bonds. The clergy didn't like how some of the bonds were being strengthened, let's put it that way. <laughs> um, there were certainly very bawdy games involved. So that would be the sort of the happening to the backdrop of the people who were immediately related to the deceased, grieving around the deceased. So there'd be this laughter and then... The Bankwincha, the, the, the keening woman, would um, make her grand entrance, often with her, her team. She was like the high priestess. And was that something, so the keening, so the wake obviously could go on for three days, but the keening was just a discreet part of that, or did it happen it would, again it would, and again? It would come, all would happen all night long. Once she started, so the Barakon would get things going, you mm -hmm. know, would start getting people loosened up, if you like. There'd be laughter, and this, those who were, very close wouldn't be laughing they'd be very close to the corpse that might be in an outside barn all of this other stuff was happening but it'd get people loosened up and then the band queen she would come in either by herself or with others the professional keeners and then once she was there she took over and she continued not only all night all through the night but would go the next day as well as far you know right until the, the body was in the grave good heavens um, yeah, so it was a marathon, huge marathon, but uh, that's one reason why, you know, they, they wouldn't, they couldn't sing on that. You can't physically sing for that length of time. So there would be breaks where there might be another weight game or there might be a break for food or whatever it was. But it was a really long, a very, very long ritual. And that's, the, the Bankwincha provided that fifth element of ritual, which is sound. 
Mm-hmm. Sound is very important, either presence of sound or lack of sound, type of sound, prescribed sound, whatever it may be. So she provided that. And very often it was they, because there'd be up to four of them, and they'd be at uh, different ends of the corpse, if you like. And so they would do alternatum, the queen, which would be the, the band queen, she would begin it, and it would it had a form, a definite form. It would begin with salutation. So it would be a recognition of whoever it was um, who was, you know, who was deceased. It would be addressed by name. And in, in the singing, Mary, they, they'd be sung. Yeah, it would be sort of chanted. Okay. We chant, you know, um, there's reports of it starting in the chest as a chronon, which would be, you know, it would be something like, Oh, you who lie before me. Da, 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 da. You know, it's sometimes it's been described as like plain chant. The beginning right. of the routine. So it would start like this and then it would move into um, a, a verse of, of the gull, the, the cry. And um, there'd be one keener at the top, one keener at the bottom. And they'd be going alternating, you know, a hone, a hone, a a Those particular vocables would be used over and over and over and over again. And it would then from side to side, they would go as well. So there was this kind of sound tunnel, if you like, not sound, big pardon, sound capsule being sort of created, if you like, over the deceased. And then the entire company would join in the chorus, which would be, again, led by the band Queen Chat, and people would just, you know, join in. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would, it wasn't about singing, right? Because then the band Queen Chat then would raise it up and raise it up and raise it up so that people were wailing and crying and you know just um the emotional intensity of it was huge by the late late middle ages coming on to the 1800s for sure there was a very strong christian element inserted into all of this so and you know i read a report once of a, of a man who said um i think it was in the 1930s he was talking about one of these keening sessions and he said there'd be the rosary in advance of it and then the keeners would come in at midnight and then they would start and there was a great elation when they opened up his words not mine so there were all these it was it was, it was a very theatrical piece it had all these elements you know the sacredness of it the space the time the costuming etc just like a play and then you would have this huge, intense singing going on. So it was very powerful. Then the next day, they would take the coffin out of the house. They would kick over the chairs that had held either the uh, the door or you know, she was, the body would have been transferred by this time to some sort of receptacle. But whatever it held that, they would kick the chairs over. That was a way of kind of breaking the spell. That person's not coming back to this house again. This is the final farewell. Then they would start, you know, like well, in the old days, it was horse-drawn, you know, a horse-drawn carriage. I spoke to a farmer in County Clare uh, about 10 years ago, and um, he told me about his first memories when he was a little boy. He was quite elderly. He told me that he remembered it. He said, you know, we were cutting turf. And he said, I'll never forget it. Because you would, the way he put it was, you'd hear them before you saw them. Because it would start coming around, the, the cortege would come around the hill. Remember, again, leading maybe from, you know, some country house 
quite a distance maybe the burial ground and we're not talking roads here we're talking paths and trails the 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 keeners would be sitting on top of the coffin which was horse drawn and they would always have very long hair which would be let loose and they would just be at this point sort of worked up into to into an incredible passion so there was this wailing happening and everybody coming with it other keeners would walk alongside you know this the side of the of the vehicle and they'd be keening as well so this com- visual and oral combination i remember the farmer told me i was absolutely terrified <laughs> and you know he was probably i don't know how old he was but he was not a young man but yet, when he described it, I saw the frightened four-year-old imprinted in his face. It was that powerful. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because the picture that you're painting and that sense of fear, that sense of the power, does remind us, those of us who are steeped in myth, of that very mythical character in the Banshee. Irish. The Banshee, exactly. <laughs> who is, of course, a kind of, uh, of Van Quincher. Um, how we're getting a little bit off subject now, but how how does that how does that relate to to the figure? Absolutely of on subject. It's totally on subject because, as I said, the van the van Quinch's function was not only the release of grief, but there was another one, and the other one was spiritual. Mm-hmm. So the van Quincher basically took the mourners to the edge, took the to the emotional edge, but she was also conferring the spirit into the next world so it's and not just for the mourners it's not just for the living the function exactly. of the keening was also to help the dead exactly so she was it was her it, through sound was conferring now you'll you'll find it in funerals today in religious ceremonies where there is chanting or certain kinds of singing and it'll have the same effect so when you're listening to it you feel transported you feel like you're you're moving to something very very mysterious so I think that that's, I feel that's as far as we can get in our living bodies to understand it. But that's what uh, a lot of scholars believe the, the real Van Quinches were actually doing. And from that, there's a continuum through to the Banshee, who is also related to the goddess of sovereignty in the other world. So in the Irish tradition. So this idea of the Banshee being an extension of the Van Quincher. There were those who actually believed that Banshees were Van Quinches who had died, mm-hmm. but because they hadn't uh, left the realm of Earth. So they were coming back to actually act as a Banshee. I want to, uh, I, I want to read you a little something which is from, uh, from my thesis, one of the most interesting interviews that I did, ethnographic interviews, and this was with um, uh, somebody who had actually witnessed a form of keening in 2000, okay? And there's no doubt that, uh, you know, it traces right back to the original. And the way the person describes it is that there were three women who, well, there were three chairs grown up, uh, drawn up to the graveside. And three women who appeared to be very closely related sat at the graveside with their feet literally on the grave, you know, at the top of it. And they began to sing. And this is another thing that happened certainly in the 1800s and 1900s, that there would be actual songs as well as the keening. It didn't, you know, the word keening has come to sort of encapsulate all of this, 
what I've been describing to you is the traditional Krinanamarov, the keen, the lament of the dead. But, you know, the word keening encapsulates the singing at a funeral, which is very emotional as well. Uh, right. The crying at a funeral, that's very emotional. But that's a sort of a watered down usage of the word. Again, in the article I read from 1833, which was a very interesting article about the keen, it's claimed that the word keen is actually a misnomer. Now, I should say the word keen is an anglicization of the Irish queen, which means a cry, a vocal cry. But in this article, it was saying it should have been kinna, C-I-N-E, which is related to the Jewish kinnet, C-I-N-E-T, which, which is funeral lament, which includes tearing of the hair, beating of the breasts and uh, clapping. And those elements also come in to the actions of the keeners. So, you know, the, the origins uh, are, are sort of much more universal than Ireland. It's just that Ireland has taken it in a, in a specific way. So I want to just read you this description from 2000. By the way they were singing together, I'd say they could possibly have been aunts or maybe local women. I'd definitely say they were either related or would have known the person very well. They looked very comfortable singing with each other. So they were used to each other's company. There were three acting as one. It wasn't forced. What they would do at certain times, one would go higher with words than others. And they'd emphasize it was like, and he demonstrated, you know, scooped the voice up from low to higher and dropped it. And some of them would lower their voices. One would go high, others would go low. It was like they were all putting little pieces into it. It was fairly, again, personal and obviously improvised. It was three very individual performances, but it was seamless. The tone would change. And I remember thinking, are they keening? Or are they singing a song? The three would sing together, but then they'd go off on a tangent. Maybe it was depending on how they felt, but it was like a performance. There wasn't a sound anywhere. All you could hear was the sound of the sea, the sound of the wind. But other than that, nobody spoke. Nobody said anything. People weren't, you know, like you'd see at funerals, those moments where people might be having a chat at the back. But there was nothing. Everyone was just focused on it. It was, I don't think it was a kind of a thing of respect. We shouldn't talk or something like that. I think it was just people were, well, it was like rabbit looking in the headlights. Everyone was just glued to it. It was like an enchanted moment just for that four or five minutes. And then it was gone. And I asked them, you know, what, what do you mean by enchanted moment? For what I would call an enchanted moment, I think the landscape has to feed into it as well. Maybe you're looking at things that you feel. Well, this makes up an enchanted moment. You have the water, the waves crashing. You have a wide open treeless scrub type of a landscape, rolling hills, bleak, barren, rocky. And I think for the few minutes it lasted, it was like as everything else went out the door. You know, it was like there was nearly like a crossover between the normal everyday life and kind of into the supernatural a bit. It was as like you were just standing on the cusp of it, where there was nowhere to look forward, nowhere to look back. You're just in that moment. And for me, that description encapsulated everything that I'd been trying to intellectually understand about the keen from all the research I've been doing. Right. Um, yeah. Profound, just profound. And so I think that though, you know, it was the mystery of the keen 
was so deep and it was sort of inculcated in in these communities and it is to some extent beginning to rise again and this is what's happened this is the other interesting thing about the keen it's like there's been lots of attempts to squash it and it goes underground for maybe 50 or 60 years and then it begins to rise again but in a different way reflecting different you know reflecting different societal shifts etc so it's all a very very powerful and profound experience So can you tell me something more about the Banshee? Because she is one of those characters in Irish literature that I think a lot of people have heard of, but we don't really know necessarily very much about her. Yeah, the Banshee is is one of the otherworldly creatures, one one of the fairy folk who are very much feared in Ireland because the Banshee is always connected with death. It's said that certain families, certainly the, the families with very old names, would have a banshee connected to them. So anytime there was somebody about to die in those families, the banshee would start to wail and that they knew there was a death coming. I heard a report once of a family like that who got so fed up with this, they emigrated to America. And, you know, the banshee followed them. <laughs> <laughs> And the same thing happened in America. <laughs> but um, It's a little bit like Neil Gaiman's American Gods, eh? They do yeah. follow you after all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's, it's very ephemeral. I mean, it's like I said, it's like the re- reflex or the reflux of the, of the Banquincha. And, you know, as you know yourself, there are lots of, lots of theories about the other world and about the fairies. And one of the theories is it's a parallel universe. And certainly in terms of the Banshee and the Banquincha, that particular theory is in play. So even illustrations of the Banshee is she's very ephemeral, you know, always sort of white, wispy clothing, sort of undefined shape, but always the long flying hair. And that was very much a feature of the Banquincha. There are certain reports, the uh, Irish Folklore uh, Society based at UCD, have a marvellous website called Duchas, D-U-C-H-A-S dot I-E, and you can find lots and lots and lots of reports of different otherworldly and folkloric uh, pieces of material on that. So, you know, there's a couple here that I just picked out earlier, one from Limerick. The Banshee follows certain families, descendants of old Irish families in every district. The crying loud and mournful, something like the keening of long ago, is mostly heard at night, but locally is supposed to be heard of in broad daylight as a warning of Captain Lyon's death. The crying is heard sometimes three successive nights, sometimes only once, immediately before the death proceeds. The Banshee follows a number of families in this district, some humble working folk, such as the Sheedies, Carter, and also the wealthy Lyons family. These latter have a great deal of English blood in their family. Indeed, the last representative of the family let his place to a tenant and lives entirely in England, so it's hard to understand what interest a poor old Irish banshee could have in them. However, many people locally claim to have heard the tradition, the wailing around the lion's property on the death of some of its members. And there was another one here. When my mother was a nurse in the county infirmary Limerick, she had, as one of her patients, a girl named Molly Sheehan. She was very ill indeed. But as she had youth and an ordinarily strong constitution in her favour, there were hopes for some time of her recovery. These failed, however, to turn the tide to her favour, as eventually, after a considerable period of illness, she died. About a week before she died, and when they were just giving up hopes of her, the wailing was heard every night for three nights around the hospital. 
Her mother came next day, and a great change for the worse in the girl. She asked if the nurses had heard crying, and when they said they had, she told them it was the banshee which followed her family, and that she'd be surprised if they hadn't heard it, as it was plain the girl was going. After that, the crying was heard no more around the house. End of story. Hmm. So, I mean, it's just one of these concepts that we have from childhood in Ireland you know I've only ever met one person who claims to have heard a banshee and that was a storyteller up in Donegal and he said that it wasn't a wail that he heard but it was like a very deep growl like a dog and um, it was very unearthly it just you know as he put it, I woke up the wife because it was so unearthly and she heard it too. And the next day they found out the next door neighbour had died. And there was nothing, you know, that had happened untoward. There was no suspicious circumstances or anything like that. So it's very difficult to, to nail it down because it's such an ephemeral concept. But I'm, I'm firmly of the belief when we, we deal with the other world that we respect the opinion of thousands. <laughs> Well, (laughs) for sure. I mean, that's why folk tales are called folk tales. They're they're stories from the folk, right? And uh, and the same for folk songs. So I just wanted to spend the last few minutes just talking a little bit about about folk songs in general, moving away from the from the keen specifically and, and thinking about the other world in folk songs, because my own research, my own uh, my own um, master's degree in Celtic studies was very much based on folk tales and folklore of the other world, both in the Irish and the Welsh traditions. And of course, the thing about folk tales is that they have a tendency to change over time. That's kind of almost what they're for. As social mores change, as as, um, as traditions change, the stories tend to move along with them as well. Now, I understand that that most folk songs have a folk tale kind of behind them or associated with them in the Irish tradition, but the folk songs themselves don't seem to change very much. Is that right? Or have I got the wrong end of the stick there? Well, you're right and you're right and not quite right at the same time. It's both. I can I can deal with wrong. It's okay, you can say I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well it's 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 not really as clear as wrong, you know, and, and that's the thing about it. I mean there's a couple of things here. First of all, in the tradition it was considered as important as the song, that you had the story of the song. The two went as a piece. So when you performed a song, now I'm talking before, I'm talking, you know, when singing was happening in local communities, in in the old Cayleys, in houses, hadn't moved into pubs because pubs pubs were relatively new. You used to have the shabines, which were the front room of a house where there would be drink. Right. <laughs> you know, so going back, it would be people's entertainment. You know, the harvest, for example, would be an occasion for everybody getting together and having a great big party. And people would do the party piece and somebody would tell a long story and somebody else would do a dance and somebody would sing a song. But you didn't sing a song without what's called the Udra and Aaron, the authority for the song or the authentication of the song. And that would be this song is about or this song came from and there'd be some story that would be attached to the song because very often in the Irish tradition unlike the English and Scottish ballads the Irish narrative tradition is a response to a story 
uh, in the English and Scottish ballads, the, the actual story, like the big child ballads, the actual story is contained in the songs. So you follow it like a like a video, you know, it's just you, you see it unraveling for you. The Irish folk song can be quite mysterious because it seems to be, what's that about? And sometimes it can be discounted because it doesn't seem very important. It's just a conversation between two people, whatever. If you know the story of the song, then it gives it a whole new depth. So that goes on. Then the other thing that happens is that songs in the Irish tradition were handed down orally. And they were handed down orally in a couple of ways. One of them was just, as I said, gatherings. Uh, some well, others were where there'd be a really good singer who'd collected songs in the area and would teach them. They would come down in the family or they might come to the neighbours or to a niece, somebody who had a, a niece or a nephew, somebody who had a, a good singing, you know, uh, a good potential for singing. Somebody may take them under their tutorhood, if you like, you know, and or tutelage and they would train them in these songs. But what would happen is the songs would change because when you get the song, then you own the song. And then subtly, especially if you're singing a song for 30 or 40 years, words are going to change or the tune is going to change or um, your ornamentation can get to the point where the tune appears to have changed, whatever it happens to be. So somebody hearing that will then make that song. And then we'll build in that song. So it's it's just exactly like folk tales. It changes and it morphs. And sometimes it comes down to people mishearing words, and then they substitute a word. Or in the case of the ballad singers who were the street singers in the 1800s who were trying to sell songs, and they'd be standing. Uh, uh, their song might be printed on a broadsheet on a ballad sheet, along with maybe the news of the day or. Uh, an almanac or a recipe or whatever it was, they'd be selling these broadsheets and they'd be hawking these songs. These were the kind of the precursors to our modern buskers who are hawking their CDs. It's the same sort of idea. So the, the, the person singing the song might be singing the song at a fair. Somebody might hear the song, would then maybe buy the broadsheet, but there was no printed music. They had no recording device, so they had to do the tune from memory. So the tune would change. Other people might hear the song, like the tune, go home humming the tune, couldn't remember the words, hadn't bought the broadsheet, and wrote their own words. <laughs> so you get this phenomenon in, in the Irish tradition of maybe four or five songs having the same tune. And also the phenomenon of verses or words, lyrics, appearing again and again in different songs. And they're often called floating verses because <laughs> they really have a home. <laughs> they just a different song. So you get all these things happening. It didn't get really be fixed until the collectors came on the scene. And the collectors began to come on the scene in the 18, mid 1800s. And then they began to write down. Now, the other thing is the Irish way of singing is very free form. You can't write it down. The first collectors were tearing their hair out because. The first phrase would be in one time. The second phrase would be in a different time. The third phrase would be in a different time. It was impossible to write this stuff down, never mind the ornamentations that were happening. So because of all this, you can really only, you know, you can look at a book and you can see a song, but that's somebody's interpretation of what they were hearing. It's only when recording as in tape recording came in, which was in, in terms of Ireland, the collectors of the recorders like Alan Lomax and the BBC as well um, and RTE. That was the 40s and 50s, 1940s and 50s. That's the only true recording of how 
the songs were sung at that time, having already mm -hmm. been through all these different stages. So it's a, it's a really ephemeral thing. So when people go on about this is right or this is wrong in Irish songs, I question it a lot because the, the whole nature of Irish singing and Irish songs is about understanding what the song's about, respecting the song, having the Uther and our on, and respecting the style and owning the song. So two people can sing the same song with the exact same ornamentation, and one owns a song and one doesn't. The song is about internalization. It's about, um, I know for my own case, some of the big songs, as we call them, some of the big Gaelic songs, I would have them, I'd be singing them for a year before I'd actually perform them publicly because I need to know that song from every angle. Why am I attracted to the song in the first place? You know, the first time I hear the song, I choke up. Ah, there's emotional content there for me. Okay, so then I, I start to sing the song. What's happening is I'm choking up. I certainly can't perform it like that. It's almost like a form of therapy you go through. You think, well, what am I choking up about? What is this resonating within me? What's happening to me here? What's this reminding me of? And you think, oh, that. And, you know, you, it's, it's, it's like a lump that you saw, that you dissolve. And then finally, the lump in your throat dissolves when you keep practicing it and singing it and thinking about it. Then you're kind of outside the song. It's in you. And you can then perform it and sing it with that same... Uh, <laughs> It, it, to some extent the same sort of ornament or whatever that you originally learned it with but the performance of it is going to affect people now because you've internalized it you've got on the outside of it now you can reach others and others can choke up on it and as a performer that's your job to give people that opportunity to have their own resonance with with your material but you've got to work through yours first of all so given all that you know, you, you have to think about patience and longitude and all the values that have sort of gone to pot <laughs> in this century, you know, with YouTube and quick fixes and this, that and the other. And I think YouTube is a great reference for songs, but the problem is that people don't have the Uder. Therefore, they don't really know where the song came from. They don't know what the background of the song was. They don't know what uh, the, the original composer had intended. So they're just taking it on face value. Yeah, I think I'm absolutely with you on that. I am always complaining about people taking stories and telling stories, particularly other people's stories, without actually learning to inhabit those stories. Mm -hmm. uh, and just, you know, the, and I'm always banging on about the lost art of apprenticeship um, because you have to apprentice yourself to a story. You have to apprentice yourself to, to a song. You have to apprentice yourself to anything. And it's, it's very clear in the old Celtic traditions, particularly in the old Irish traditions, that words and song chanting incantations were believed to have great power, that they literally would change the world, that they had that capacity. If they were sung or if the words were said, by a filly, by a bard, by someone with the proper training who knew exactly what they were doing, who had that authority, who'd spent 20 years maybe gaining that authority. And that's something that I think it's very sad, you know, that, that we have lost. Maybe 20 years might be too long a time, maybe it might not. But <laughs> that idea that we don't actually 
have to really learn to inhabit our stories and our songs. I think is a, is a great pity. And um, and Mary, the the other world is is um, just to finish up with for the for the last couple of minutes. The other world is quite a strong trope, inevitably in a lot of the Irish folk songs, just as it is in the folk tales as well. Is is that right? Absolutely. But it's 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 interesting. I mean, I did my PhD on other world song. And I was amazed how hard I had to look to, <laughs> it was like I had to, I had to pull away layers and layers uh, to see where the other world was coming through. Interesting. And it, yeah. So there are a few out there that are apparent. Um, there's a book by Reinaka Yogan and Tom Sherlock called Other World Song, which is great, where they have collected those songs, but that, that book was over 20 years in the making <laughs> and um, they collected all these other world songs, very obscured because, you know, it, it's been denigrated. The other world has been denigrated as superstition, as you don't believe in that old nonsense, all that stuff. So to find not only uh, the songs which are directly about the other world, but to find the references to the other world, which actually lace through so many songs. But you need to know what you're looking for. It's like you're digging for treasure. You need to know where it is you're digging and what the treasure is going to look like. It was it was really frustrating the first year of my PhD where I had this great idea. I was going to do the other, other world songs of Ulster for my PhD. I couldn't find one. Right, I, yeah. I, what is going on? And anyway, with lots and lots of determination and lots of research, finally, you know, I broke through and I took a different angle and I looked for songs of enchantment. And and then suddenly the songs of Ulster revealed themselves to me. <laughs> it was a fascinating journey. <laughs> so I think that, that, yeah, they are much more present than people give them credit for. But it's like the fairies. They're hidden. They're invisible. They're only apparent when you intrude upon them or whatever, or you feel their sting or whatever it is, you know, but they're they're invisible. They're believed to be there, as Tom Munley uh, quoted, and it's, it's, it's a quote that many people have used. I don't believe in them, but they're there all the same. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and we are going to end then with, with your song. Steel Woman. Steel Woman. Um, and this is an old song. I discovered it actually when I was living in the Isle of Lewis uh, in the Outer Hebrides and found an, an old reference to an old manuscript where it was called the Seal Woman's Sea Joy originally. And of course, that song, one of the reasons why I loved it and why I found it was because I was doing a lot of research into the Selkie tale, the story of the seal woman whose skin is stolen from her by a fisherman. And this song, if I remember rightly, was 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 supposed to have been sung by the seal woman at the point when she had got her sea her skin back and was going back into the sea, hence her sea joy. That's right. I I learned it about 1990, I think it was, in a in a voice workshop, and it just made a huge impact on me. It was the Yonda chant, and but I hadn't been told the story. It was just the chant that just uh-huh. looked to me. I didn't know the story. I just knew it was something about a selfie. But I went, you know, I was recording my first album at the time, The Daughter of Lear, and I just went to the studio and said, I have to do this song. And I did the chant, and then I wrote the Seal Woman lyrics, which I sing over the top of it in English, based on my own feelings about it, I suppose, but what I knew about the selkie legends in general and about, you know, this idea of, you know, to me, the selkie 
was a the female selkie she was having an adventure you know she wants she wanted to come just like young people today want to go travel in India or travel in China when I was young I wanted to go and travel in these places it's a very natural thing to do to go and explore other countries so coming from under the sea the selkie wanted to explore this land of earth you know and unfortunately in the stories as you know they usually got caught and trapped and and the I did find the Sea Woman's Joy. It's in uh, David Thompson's book, People of the Sea. I found the Sea Woman's Joy there. And of course, that's exactly as you described. She escaped. <laughs> she got back. So her song is a song of joy. But I didn't know that story at the time. So when I wrote the Sea Woman's Song, I, I was singing it more from the point of view of the longing of, you know, this is what I want to do. But um, And that the Sea Woman would come to earth. And occasionally they did fall in love. Very occasionally they fell in love with the person who captured them. This one had, but she felt she had to go back to the sea. So that's where the song Seal Woman came from. And it was interesting when I found the Seal Woman's Joy, I thought, wow, I wasn't that far off the mark. So there was enough in the chant to have actually conveyed that, which I found interesting. It is. I mean, I I always describe it, even though it is in the. I, I found it somewhere else. I found a, a copy of the of the original uh, manuscript of it where. It, calls it her sea joy but I also clearly it is at the point where she is feeling joyful about having her skin back and going into the sea but I have always seen it as a song of longing as well you know that that it conveys something of that longing for her skin and of course as a psychologist well I've written about that story extensively in um, my book if women rose rooted that sense of being stripped of our skin of being stripped of who we are of longing for a part of us that sometimes we don't even remember what it is or we can't imagine it anymore is tied up somehow in that beautiful song with with the with the joy of actually you know the joy of the return part of the journey so anyway Mary thank you so much for all of your sharing all of your knowledge it's been absolutely fascinating listening to you and I'm really grateful to you for taking the time and people can find you at your website which is www.marymclaughlin.com and as I mentioned you do teach online you teach singing in the Gaelic tradition online so if anybody is interested in that or in your workshops I guess they can find out how to contact you there yeah, there's a contact page. There's a contact page on the website, and also there's on the front of the website. There's a link to my Facebook page, and you know, so it's readily available. I'm running some workshops on the Keen in uh, Castle Bar, uh, which is in County Mayo, in the new year. So things like that I put up there, and they're on my website page too. But I'm easily contacted through the contact page. Sharon, thank you. It's been a delight talking to you. Thank you for indulging me in one of my favorite subjects. It's a wonderful <laughs> subject. And we are going to have a, a wonderful time listening to you singing Seal Woman back in the, the 1990s as we fade out. So thanks so much, Mary.
Thank you all for listening to This Mythic Life, and a reminder that if you enjoyed it, you might also enjoy my monthly membership program, which is also called This Mythic Life, and which includes a weekly subscriber-only podcast in which I focus in on a favourite myth or fairy tale and discuss the ways in which its themes and archetypes have relevance for our lives in these challenging times. You can find details at www.sharonblackie.net forward slash membership. And these public podcasts are developed, produced and brought to you thanks to the generosity of my Patreon supporters. If you're able to support this work, and you can do so from as little as $1 a month, please do head over to patreon.com and search for Sharon Blackie. Or you can find a link on my website's podcast page. So this is me signing off for now. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time.